All right, tonight we go back to the subject of law and gospel. I did, between Monday and today, about three hours of additional teaching on the subject. I uh, reviewed a lecture that was done at a conference on the subject of law and gospel. Um, they, they started their conference with quoting the uh, quote from Luther about the teacher who can properly distinguish between law and gospels, you know, like the head of the table. So I thought that was interesting. They used the same quote, um, but all of that is, is online. And so what we're going to do tonight, um, we're, we're not going to go, I, I want to get back and start, obviously, it would make sense in some ways to go right back to, uh, simply, since I gave the list of all 25 theses, to go back to number one and then start working through them. But we're going to take kind of a little interlude, kind of just a little pause, and just do a little bit of church history and a little bit of the London Baptist Confession of Faith so that we can at least see where this subject at least comes to show up in the confession that we've been using forever here, that you can at least see that this subject is, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's been talked about and it has to be dealt with. I mean, I wish, I wish Christianity was like, everyone could just open a Bible, we could just all say, hey, everything's wonderful, we all agree on everything, and there's no problems or difficulties, but the reality is, if I open up the Bible and read John 3.16, for God so loved the world, before I get past the word world, there's already stopping and disagreement. Wait, does God love the world? Like, does he love everyone in the world the same? Does he love the lost person as much as he loved the elect? Is there an electing love? Is there a general love? What does it mean that he loves the world? Like, how does that work? How does, how does that make sense? Uh, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth him should, you know, should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, if God loved everyone, why would he create a world that anyone could perish? I mean, immediately there becomes all kinds of questions and problems. And then there's all kinds of you know, the world. What does the word world mean there? Does that mean he loves every single person. There's so many issues in every single verse. I wish it wasn't that way. I wish it was just, just open up the Bible and just tell everyone to love Jesus. But even telling everyone to love Jesus, that becomes an issue, right? So, because look at the church history. Did everyone agree on even who Jesus was or his attributes or his characteristics? You had the argument about the hypostatic union, right? Is he of the same nature of the Father or of a, of a Similar nature of the Father, right? Uh, do we believe in the Trinity? Do we believe that Jesus was the first created being? Uh, all the different issues. So um, church, if church history has been filled with the disagreements and the fighting and the arguing, we really can't believe that Christianity would be any different today. Correct? So we have to deal with these issues. And to make it even more complicated is the Bible itself at times seems to be filled. And we talked about this at the very beginning of this series filled with hundreds of possible contradictions, right? You're saved by grace alone through faith alone. However, James seems to say, you're not saved by faith alone. So then which is it? Well, these, these create problems and create tension. And one, and one that creates a lot of problems and a lot of tension is our understanding of law and our understanding of gospel. And what we've put forth is that we have to have a proper distinction between law and gospel. And what can we not do between the two? Mingle them together because typically what happens when they're mingled? Gospel is destroyed. Law seems to always stand to some, in some way, shape, or form. And I talked about some ways in which these are mingled. And typically when they're mingled, the people mingling them would argue that they're not mingling them. They would argue, no, 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 no. I, I, I have a gospel focus. But you can think you have a gospel focus when in reality you have the, it's, it's really weird. Sometimes the people who will argue they have the gospel focus are really more law-based, and, and sometimes the ones that are accused of being more gospel-based are, 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 are being more law-based, maybe more gospel-based, and the ones being accused of being gospel-based may be more law-based. It is just bizarre how there's so much disagreement and confusion in all of this, because I think in some way something happened, I think, historically, where we stop speaking in these terms, law and gospel, right? We, we speak, I think, in, in, in kind of a more evangelical modern church terminology, if you mention law, someone may go Old Testament. And if you say gospel, someone may say New Testament. Like, they, they understand the general concepts, but they don't understand the true theological 
connection here and how to deal with it. So let's do a little bit of, of work on church history. I'll be borrowing from an article. I'll be changing a lot, and we'll try to put this together. This is how the article begins. When one looks at the New Testament teachings of Jesus and the writings of the apostles, one would think that a confession of faith ought to have some explanation of the law of God as well as the gospel of Christ. I think you can agree. Would you agree that if if you look at the New Testament teaching of Jesus and of the apostles, when we read the teachings of Jesus and read the teachings of the apostles, do we see things that are clearly connected to law? Do this, do this, do this. And do we also see this idea of gospel? Believe and Jesus did this and you will be saved. So if you're going to have a confession of faith, don't you have to kind of address the two? Yes, and if you address the two, what else do you have to figure out? Is what's, what's the correct distinction? How do they harmonize? Is there any mingling? What do we do with these? So they're making an argument that any good confession of faith should deal, should deal with these things. They go on to say, you cannot read the Sermon on the Mount, Romans, Galatians, James, or 1 John without seeing many references to the law of God or to commandments. Can we agree that there's plenty of that? And when we think of the law, we think of what? Commandments. Demands. Right? Commands, demands, and condemnation. Right? There is condemning, there is demands, and there are commands when we speak of the law. And I talked about this uh, 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 this week and some of the other things we reviewed. And, and that law demands something, right? That law demands perfect obedience. That law demands exact obedience, right? It demands perpetual obedience. It demands this. So we understand when we read, we see these commands, 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 commands. And then every Christian, when they see those commands, they have to figure out what to do with them, right? Some see the commands and do what with it? You got to do this to be saved, right? And we call that a works-based system, a legalistic system, and we say that's a false gospel, correct? But we see those commands, so we have to do something with it. So some will say, okay, it, those commands don't save us, but then they come along and say, they will argue that those commands prove what we're saved. So I don't have to do them to be saved, but if I don't do them, I'm not saved, which means... I have to do them in order to be saved. You see the, you see the circle that gets created right there? And then somehow we feel like we're dead. And then, then Catholics are looking at us going, you're kind of saying what we're saying, right? Just because you kind of change it a little bit, you're still saying what? And, then, and so then someone will come along, no, 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 no. Those, those laws, those commands, those demands, those, that condemnation, that condemning, that should point us to the gospel. So, but everyone has to deal with this. When you read these passages of scripture, what do you do? Some people read the Sermon on the Mount and say, what? If you don't do this, you're not saved. Some say you, that your obedience to the Sermon on the Mount proves you're saved. And then someone like me would raise my, a hand and go, wait, wait, wait a minute. The Sermon on the Mount says to be perfect. That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, everyone should stop and go, well, if, if that proves that I'm saved, I'm done, right? So immediately we realize oh, there's, there's conflict here. There's problems. And, and I know nobody likes the conflict, but everyone, what we have to realize is everyone struggles. With, the the entire, entirety of Christianity is people struggling with these questions. We're not the first to struggle. The key is Christians should try our best to work together to try to figure it out. We have to. Catholics tried to figure it out, right? We say the Catholics are wrong. The Catholics say we're wrong. The Greek Orthodox say that we're wrong and the Catholics are. Everyone says everyone else is wrong. If it was so easy, we would all be what? In agreement. So what we have to do with these is try to understand we have to try to come up with what they're saying and then take it where 
to its logical conclusion, and once we get to the logical conclusion, we have to ask, does it work? All right, so anyone, so anyone reads those things, they're going to see references to the law. Yet, in the progression of Baptist confessions, if we just look at Baptist confessions, from England into America, we see seem of a, re, a kind of a reduction, kind of a, something kind of started changing in how maybe they dealt with these issues. And the question is, why? Well, I don't know if I have a good answer to why. But let's take a little bit of journey and see what we can find. All right? Okay? Well, let's start with the 1689. The 1689 Second London Confession. We'll call that the SLC. The Second London Confession. All right? The Second London Confession. What do you have in your hands there, Bobby? It says 77. Okay. So this comes even... Later, right? Uh, 1677, all right? 1677 and 1689, all right? This one, uh, 1689. So the 1689 is what we're looking for. Okay, I thought you were, I thought you were saying a different year. Okay, I was like, wait, what does he have in his hands? Okay, all right. All right. So the Second London Confession of 1689 included chapter 19. Look and tell me if that's correct. And what is chapter 19 called there? The law of God. Wow. An entire chapter dedicated to the law of God. And Bobby, tell me what chapter 20 is. The gospel and the extent thereof. Some, I think some may say the gospel and the influence. But either way, the chapter 19 is about law and chapter 20 is gospel. So showing the two. Does everybody see that? That's very, 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 very important. All right. And we'll be looking up the London Baptist Confession in a few minutes and working on this, okay? Okay, I don't know which one you have. Do you have chapter 19, chapter 20, Law and Gospel? Okay, there may be some slight different wording, but you should, have, you should be good to go, all right? Okay, that's 1689, okay. All right, well, the 1689 is the one we want, okay? Yeah, all right, so we're good to go. It's called the Second London Confession. All right, or the SLC. We'll just call it the SLC. Everybody good with that? All right. This confession, so the 1689, was adopted at the Philadelphia, as the Philadelphia Baptist Confession in 1747. So we go 1689, we go to 1747, and guess what? It's adopted as the Philadelphia Baptist Confession. 1747, I have a copy of that somewhere, right? I can't remember where, but I bought the book, and I have that one, okay? So far, so good, all right? So we have 1689 to win, 1747, and we call it the Philadelphia Baptist Confession, right? Then, the Charleston Baptist Confession of 16, or I'm sorry, 1767, 1767. And guess what? All of those have those chapters on law and gospel. So we can say it this way. They are, because Philadelphia is where? North. Charleston would be south. So the early northern and southern Baptist held to a theology of law and the gospel as a major doctrine in the Baptist life. So we went from 1689 to 1767, and nobody had, the the law and gospel was a major part of the Baptist life and Baptist confession and Baptist theology. Which is somewhat interesting, because when I, when I, now I know it's a long time after that, but when I become a Christian as a teenager in a Baptist church, this concept of law and gospel was not a part of Baptist life. All right, how many, how many went to a Baptist church at any point in their life? How many years ago? 30 years ago is when you first walked into a Baptist church? Did you hear a lot of discussion about law and gospel and the distinction? Okay, okay. Okay, right. You didn't, you, you didn't hear, you, well, at least it was said to be gospel. Whether it was truly gospel is... It's another question, okay, but, because a lot of times what is put forth as gospel is actually law, and which is really, can be really confusing, okay, but, yes. 
a lot of rules and regulations, right? Do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. Remember, anytime you're hearing do this, don't do this, or, or your Christianity is called into question, that is law. That is not gospel. That is not gospel. Okay. Because uh, clearly when I became a teenager, that's all I heard. I can't, I can't listen to this. I can't go to dances. I can't do this. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. I mean, that's all I knew. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And I'm supposed to be doing this and don't smoke and don't do this and don't do drugs and don't look at this and don't, and don't date that person. And oh man, alive. I mean, who, who, I didn't sign up for all of that. I just, Yes, exactly. I, I thought uh, I was just believe in Jesus and be saved, and it was believe in Jesus. No, 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 no. Believe in Jesus and do, and for those listening online, this dictionary of rules. And if I don't, then I'm probably not saved. That's not gospel. That is law. Okay, and that so something happened just in my just in my experience. Correct. So what happened? Well. Here we go. This is where things seem to start. So we, go, we started in 1689, and we got two chapters on what? Law and grace, or law and gospel. Okay, I know what you meant. All right, law and gospel, correct? Then 1689, we jumped to when? 1747 to the Philadelphia Baptist. From 1747, we jump where? 1767 to the Charleston Baptist Confession. So Northern and Southern Baptists had... Kind of a law and gospel, at least in their confessions. Now, let me make it very clear. Just because it was in their confessions, do you think it always showed up in the preaching? No, obviously not. Obviously not. We all know that everyone... Well, maybe it did, but I'm saying there's probably... We know there was examples clearly where it wouldn't have because it's just true in every era. It's true in every era and every generation. I can, I can give everyone the London Baptist Confession and tell everyone it's the London Baptist Confession, there's a high probability, even in churches where that's the confession, people don't read it, people don't study it, and people may not even know what's in it, even though they would say, yeah, I hold to the London Baptist. Can we all say amen that we've all been guilty of that? Yes. Yeah, so, um, that, so we know, but at least I want you to know it was in the confession. And the only reason I'm saying that is I'm going to get an email probably in five minutes going, wait, I've got sermons from the 1700s, 1600s. Look, that's not the case. Well, just because it wasn't in the preaching doesn't mean it wasn't in the confession. Preaching and confessions constantly are in conflict. Constantly in conflict. Right? Right. Why? Because what happens in preaching and what happens in the life of believers? Our thoughts, our wants, our ideas always trumps what? Our doctrine, our theology, and our confession. It always does, always will, always has, right? It's just the reality of it, okay? Now, let's jump to 1833. 1833. The New Hampshire Baptist Confession. Well, we, we could, there's a lot of different things that happen in all that time. There's a lot of, I mean, we're, we're skipping a lot of church history, but okay. 1833, the New Hampshire Baptist Confession was composed by J. Newton Brown. That's 1833. What's it called? The New Hampshire Baptist Confession is composed by whom? J. Newton Brown. And it was included in J. M. Pendleton's Baptist Church Manual of 1867. J.M. Pendleton's Baptist Church Manual in 1867. Okay, so now we're, we're up into 1833. That gets us to 1867. Everybody so far so good? Yes? J.M. As in Mary. Baptist Church Manual. Okay, now, does anybody know why that's important? Well, until 1896, until 1896, the Northern Baptist churches followed the 1833 New Hampshire Baptist Confession, 
Well, the Southern Baptist churches still look to the 1689 Second London's, London Confession. So there kind of became a split here. One went with the New Hampshire, one went with the Second London. The South went with the Second London, the North started going with the New Hampshire. Okay? Now, the new, this is what you need to know about the New Hampshire. It had a much shorter article on the law and the gospel theology of Scripture, but it still held to the essentials. In other words, it started being reduced. All right? You want to, read, you want to hear the chapter that are they added here? Okay? Or all they had, because they, they reduced the... Remember how many chapters we have in the second London? We have at least those two. And we can even go back and look at some of the other chapters and maybe get some, some other discussions about it. All right? Well, they, they wrote, they, there was one here simply called Of the Harmony of the Law and the Gospel. Of the Harmony of the Law and Gospel. Ready to hear what it says? Everybody ready? Okay. Now, this is the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of 1833. All right, here we go. And everybody understands how one, the north kind of goes that way, the south goes with the second London. Right? Now, at some point, Baptists just do what? Just basically throw them all out. Okay? Because when you were a Baptist, did you know anything about a Baptist Confession of Faith? Did you, if your church even had a Confession of Faith, it, but it probably never talked about, yeah, yeah, you were like, yeah, okay. Because most of us, I didn't know anything about it. When I was a Baptist, I didn't know anything. That's why, that's what attracted me to Lutherans. Right? Lutherans, I was like, oh, this is awesome. I get a, I have, I have all of this theology and have all this doctrine. Baptists were handing me like, I don't know, the Sunday school quarterly for youth. It was like, what is this? Like, and Lutherans were handing me the Luther Catechism and the Osberg Confessions. And I'm like, I want to be Lutheran. They got bigger books, right? Okay, so, but Baptists, I didn't know, I didn't even know about any of these things. Once again, showing what? Something changed. Something changed. Well, here's what they wrote in the 1833. We believe that the law of God is the eternal and unchangeable rule of his moral government that it is holy, just, and good, and that the inability which the Scriptures ascribe to fallen men to fulfill its precepts arises entirely from their love of sin to deliver them from which and to restore them through a mediator to unfeigned obedience to the holy law is one great end of the gospel and of the means of grace connected with the establishment of the visible church. All right, now let me go through that slowly. That's a lot here. All right, so let's go through it. Let's take it apart. I don't want to get too much into this because I really want to look at the London Baptists, but, and then we'll, we'll get to these. But I just want you to see how people have been struggling with these issues. All right, so let's, let's take it apart. The first part I don't think anyone has a problem with. We believe that the law of God is the eternal and unchangeable rule of his moral government. That sound good? Everybody good with that? That it is holy. Anybody got a problem with that? That it is just and good. So far, so good. So God's law is what? Eternal, unchangeable. It's the rule of his moral government. It is holy, just, and good. Everybody should be able to... Amen. And that the inability which the scriptures ascribe to fallen men. Now, please note. Right? Maybe. Okay, maybe. That's where I, that's what I feel coming, right? All right? Because they immediately say, the scriptures ascribe the inability to keep it to the fallen man. All right, now, now, we, I got some questions here. Yeah, right. Well, they're just saying, well, yeah, well, all of us are fallen, so I guess you could make an argument. That, but let's see if they make a distinction here, all right? But everybody at least heard what I heard, because I'm like, well, wait a minute, all right? So, which the scriptures ascribe to fallen men to fulfill its precepts arises entirely from their love of sin. I got no problem with that, right? Why, do, why would we not want to fulfill God's law? Because I love sin. Now, I would probably write it differently. It arises from our love of self. 
Sin, we're born sinners, and the natural results of being a sinner is to love self. Right? Does that make sense? I would go with that direction, right? It's, like, it's not so much that I love sin, I love self. Our problem, we, we all love self. A lot. A whole lot, <laughs> okay? A whole, whole, whole lot. Right? So, now, so far so good? Now, so, to fulfill its precepts arises entirely from their love of sin. Here we go. To deliver them from which and to restore them through a mediator to unfeigned obedience to the holy law. Now, wait a minute. All right. So something's going to come along to do what? To deliver us and restore us. Listen to these words. Through a mediator. So who's the mediator going to be? Christ. So let's go through this. It's going to deliver us and restore us through a mediator. What To restore us to what? Unfeigned obedience to the holy law. What is unfeigned? What do you think? Y'all can look it up. You can ask a friend. You can... You can. What do we have there? Let's see. Anybody can look it up. Sincere and genuine obedience to the law. So, let me ask you, did Christ restore you to a genuine, what was the other? A genuine, sincere obedience to the law? He did not restore me to that. Now, he provided a sincere obedience to the law to me and a imputed righteousness. That's a scary that's a scary confession right there. That's a very scary confession. Because now how do I know you've been restored by Christ? Your unfeigned obedience to him. To the law, to the law. Yeah, that's true, to the law. That's Ooh, that's scary. Okay, let's let's it just says to the holy law. And then listen. So, uh, it's a, it, so he's going to deliver them from which and to restore them through a mediator to unfeigned obedience to the holy law. Now listen to this. Is one great end of the gospel. So the one great end of the gospel is to restore you to obedience. So the gospel is there to make you obedient to the law. That is... Uh, does, does that not bother anybody? Am I the only one bothered by that? To save me because of my disobedience, right? <laughs> to bring me, to bring Christ's obedience to me. But, it, but if the minute you say the gospel is to make you obedient to the law, now it depends on what you mean by that. Like, if you mean positionally, if you mean because of imputed, but that's not what that sounds like. That's a little concerning. Now, that I guarantee you can put that in any confession of faith in any church in America. People would read it and say amen to it. Because we, don't, we wouldn't even think about it, right? But the minute you think about it, you're like, wait a minute. Do, have I ever had unfeigned obedience to the law of God? Sincere? Full? No. May have a desire. A desire is a million miles away from doing it, right? Your kid may desire to clean his room, but that's a million miles away from doing it, right? Okay. What was that definition? Sincere and genuine. Our motives are constantly messed up, right? We don't know why we do we. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes we obey for our own benefit. Now listen to this. Now, and this is interesting. Unfeigned obedience to the holy law is one of the great end of the gospel and of the means of grace connected with the establishment of the visible church. So now it says the visible church, there's, there's a means of grace within the church. Now what is the means of grace? Now this gets almost sacramental. 
Okay, well, they would being Baptist, unless they made a reference to them, I guess maybe the preaching of God's word is a means of grace. I don't know. But in other words, so the gospel is there to make you, give you unfeigned obedience. And then the church is there to give you the means of grace to be able to do what? Carry out that unfeigned obedience. That sounds as Roman Catholic as you can get. Because what does God do in salvation? Infuses you with righteousness. You cooperate with that righteousness and who is there to help you? Through the means of grace, which are the, how many in the Catholic Church? Seven sacraments. Wow, that's, isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's Baptist. Now, here we go. Now we're going to jump in time. We're going to jump in time. I mean, I mean, I would need some like, I would need a lot of work here to know exactly what they're claiming because there's some serious concerns I have here, right? Okay. What is ironic is that when the 1925 Southern Baptist Convention adopted the 1925 Baptist Faith and Message. So now where did we jump to? 1925. Southern Baptist. And what do they adopt? This is talked about every year when the Southern Baptists meet. The Baptist faith and message. The Baptist faith and message. It's talked about in the news every year. Because there's always debates over the Baptist faith and message. And should Southern Baptist churches, do they follow it? Do they not follow it? Are they bound by it? What are they going to say this time? Are they going to put anything in there about critical race theory? Are they going to say anything about homosexuality? There's always debates over it, okay? Guess what they used? The, the, the Northern 1833 New Hampshire Baptist Confession as its template instead of the historical Second London, London Confession. And, and listen, and not only this, but the 1925 Baptist Faith and Message left out the entire chapter on the harmony of law and gospel. They just left it out. Not only did they follow that, that as their template, when they got to that chapter, they just left it out. Well, I can see why. Whoa, you could, you could argue. But they didn't put anything there to deal with law and gospel. But you could see, now that's, a good, that's a good point. That's a good point. You could see maybe why they left. They're like, what is this? Okay, let's leave that one out. But you, would have put, you, you should have put something in its place, right? I think so. Right. So that, this article asks the question, why is this? Why would the 1925 Southern Baptist choose the Northern Baptist Confession over its historical connection to the Second London? Why did they go with the New Hampshire and not the Second London? What, what, what was the change? And was there something that our forefathers believed about the law and the gospel up until 1900 that modern Baptists just overlooked? And guess what? The Baptist faith and message, it's gone through subsequent versions. Are you ready? 1925? 1963? 1998? And 2000? And guess what seems to be missing? The doctrine of law and gospel as making any kind of proper distinction. Why? What do you think happened? Anybody got any ideas? I don't know. They quote, they have two quotes here. One from John Newton, the, the one who wrote Amazing Grace. All right. He quote, this is a quote from him. Clearly to understand the distinction and harmony between the law and the gospel and their mutual subserviency to illustrate and establish each other is a singular privilege and a happy means of preserving the soul from being entangled by errors on the right hand or the left. John Newton believed the way to keep you preserved from error was to be able to properly understand law and gospel. Something changed in time, did it not? Some changed somewhere. Charles Haddon Spurgeon in 1855. 1855, Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote this. There is no point 
upon which men make greater mistakes than upon the relation which exists between the law and the gospel. Right? So this is the point which men make the greater mistakes, according to Spurgeon. He goes on to say, some men put the law instead of the gospel. Others put the gospel instead of the law. Some modify the law and the gospel and preach neither law nor gospel. And others entirely just completely ignore or erase the law. By bringing in the gospel. So some will just completely ignore the law by just preaching gospel. In other words, they, there's all kinds of mistakes that happen with this. I'm, I'm paraphrasing some of this, all right? Many there are who think that the law is the gospel and who teach that men by good works of benevolence, honesty, righteousness, and sobriety may be saved. Such men do err. On the other hand, many teach that the gospel is a law that has certain commands in it by obedience to which men are saved. Such men err from the truth and understand it not. A certain class maintains that the law and the gospel are mixed and that partly by observance of the law and partly God's grace, men are saved. These men understand not the truth and are false teachers. So, but, but, but Spurgeon realized there was all kinds of confusion going on. There was all, and that's 1855. He was like, something's gone wrong. And by the time we get to 1900, what seems to happen? Well, by 1900, the world, that's a good point. By 1900, the world goes absolutely insane, okay? You start in 1900, like, a bomb goes off. A nuclear bomb goes off in Christianity. I'm not saying it was not ever bad in the past, but it just seems like, well, at least for America, 1900, everything just goes completely haywire, crazy. And you seem to have an obliteration of this distinction between law and gospel. All right, now, we don't have a lot of time. That gives you at least some idea. What do I want you to take from that? That clearly at some point, even in Baptist history, there was some concern about this distinction, yes? But when they wrote about a harmonizing it, it was a mess. And then it was just completely dropped. And by the time we come along and end up in Baptist churches, we don't even have a clue this exists. The first time I heard it was where? A Lutheran church. I think... The Lutheran Hour, I may have heard it first on the Lutheran Hour, the radio program that came on every Sunday night at, what, 10 p.m. or 10.30 p.m. Um, that's because every Sunday, I would, uh, before you know, going to bed, I would always listen to the Lutheran Hour uh, because I was like, oh, I can get some Lutheran preaching. And I think that maybe that was the first time I came in contact with And I didn't, trust me, I didn't even know what in the world they were talking about. I didn't even understand. I didn't, I was, and even as a Lutheran, I was still perplexed by, because to me, you know what it sounded like? Just believe in Jesus and do whatever you want. I would have probably accused him of being antinomian. Because that's what it sounded like to my Baptist ears. My Baptist ears is like, no, 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 no. We're going to be teaching the kids not to do this and to do this and to do this and to do this and do this and do this and don't do this and do this and don't. We're going to give them 500 rules. But guess what I found? I don't think the Lutheran kids were any worse off than the Baptist kids. Because guess what rules have never done? Never changed anybody. Right? Church of Christ. You can lose your salvation. Are Church of Christ people better than Baptist people? No. So teaching you can lose your salvation doesn't make anyone better. All the, all the different attempts to make us better, none of them have ever worked. Can we, I think we, can all, we, sh- we should be, all, uh, uh, be able to agree on that. Yes? So I just want you to see something happen. This article doesn't even explain what. They don't know what happened. They don't know. So, they don't have an idea. Nobody knows what happened. I don't know. I I, I wish we had an idea. I don't know. But I I think you can probably go back to some of that time. And you know what I think typically happens in some of these cases? At different times, there's always seems a, a moral crisis that arises within society, right? Like, all of a sudden, everyone's upset with alcohol, or someone's upset with this issue, or someone's upset with this issue, or someone's upset with rock and roll, or someone's upset with pornography, or someone's upset. And whenever the church gets upset with the moral decay in society, what does the church always bring to society when we're upset about the moral decay of it? We always bring law. 
Whenever you or I am bothered at myself about my sin and about my lack of passion or desire for God or struggle with whatever, whatever sin it may be, what do we almost run to for help whenever we're struggling with our own sin? We, well, yeah, I think we have a tendency to run to law. Rules, right? I need a book on telling me 15 ways not to do, how, 10 ways to stop committing that sin and how to do, we rent, we have a tendency to run to law. I need accountability. I need this. I need to do this. I need to do this. I need, we, it's always, we tend to run there now, instead of running to the gospel because some people would say running to the gospel is a cop out, right? You're just running to, you're just running to Christ to be forgiven and you don't care how you live. But I'm, I'm gonna argue. I'm, I've put forth this thesis in, in some of the podcast episodes. I'm under the, I'm, I'm beginning to become more convinced that law-based rules only leads to behavioral modification. It may try to make us, we clean up the outside of the cup. We grab some fig leaves, right? Gospel, if we ran to the gospel, I think that has a greater chance of an internal change. But it feels like running to the gospel is that we're not taking our sins serious because if we're taking our sins serious, then we would take a five-step program to stop doing it. Okay. Well, I, well I, I, I hope that you don't believe it now because I've been trying to move us away from that way of thinking. But I think that there was a time in all of our Christian life, that's what you did, right? If, if someone comes to you and go, I'm struggling with this sin, did you present the gospel to them? Or do you say, well, are you doing this? Are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? Come on, we go to the same, we always give them the same steps, right? Instead of saying, Christ died for you. Your sins are completely forgiven. We, we almost feel like we don't want to do that, right? I'm like, no, 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 I got to make them feel really, really bad. Typically, if they're coming to you, they already feel bad. So they don't need more law. They don't need to be try harder. They need to be Christ did it for you. But that feels like you're giving them a way out. Okay, come on, it's got to feel that way. Right? So, okay, at least I think so. You may disagree with my hypothesis, but that's okay. Oh, man, we're almost out of time. All right, let's go to chapter 19 of the Second London Baptist Confession. Um, I'm, I'm looking at the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith in modern English, so if it disagrees with your translation, I'm going with the modern one, okay? Does that work? All right. Chapter 19, the law of God, paragraph 1. God gave Adam a law of what word? The universal obedience, the, the modern uh, translation, comprehensive obedience, written in his heart, and a specific precept not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is making an argument that God's law is written where? On the heart from the very beginning. And listen, this is very important to understand. Why do you think we're so law-based in every aspect of our lives? Because it's right there. And isn't everyone law-based in some way? This is right, this is wrong, I can't believe they did it. We judge, we condemn, we point our finger. Man, we are law Are we not law-based parents? Law-based parents? Law, we're law-based everything, are we not? We, we are. Law-based churches, law-based. Right? Starts from the very beginning. By these, God obligated him and all his descendants. Are you ready? So because he gave this law, God obligated Adam and everyone from Adam to personal, total, exact and perpetual obedience. What words do they use in the older translations? All right. Entire, exact, personal, and perpetual. You may want to write those down words. God's law demands an entire, an exact, personal, and perpetual obedience. I've been repeating those words a lot the last couple of days. What does God's law demand? What kind of obedience? Personal. That means what? You. Don't look at anybody else. Next. Entire. What does that mean? 
The whole law, every bit of it, exact, means not partial obedience, not kind of obedience, not like, well, I'm trying to do the right thing. No, it's got to be exact, and exactly what it says, and then what kind? What does that mean? Continual. Now, I want you to just look at that. That's what the law demands. Now, listen to me. Everybody ready? If that's what the law demands, and Bobby asked me, how do I know I'm saved? And I point Bobby that you have to look at your obedience to the law to know if you're saved. The minute he looks to the law, what should he see? Not because, Bobby, is your obedience to the law personal, exact, entire, and perpetual? No. And guess what? Was the law ever designed to give assurance? The law was designed to do what? Show as we can't, all right? But we'll get to the uses of the law in a minute, all right? So, so those are important words. That personal, exact, entire, perpetual. God promised life if Adam fulfilled it and threatened death if he broke it and he gave Adam the power and the ability to keep it. I have no problem saying Adam had the power and the ability to keep it because what did Adam not have? I said nature. So I got no problem with that. No problem with that at all. Does that make sense? Remember what I always say? If anyone had free will, who had it? Adam and Eve. Because they didn't have a sin nature. If you ever want to talk about, well, did man have free will? Adam and Eve did. But something changed when they sinned. Right? Number two. That's paragraph one. Right? Paragraph two. The same law that was first written in the human heart continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. So after the fall, what's the rule? God's law. And what does that law demand? Everyone say it with me. Personal, entire, exact, perpetual obedience. So far, so good. It was delivered by God on Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and was written in two tables. The first commandment contains our duty to God and the other six our duty to humanity. So far, so good. And, what, what, and what's required for the Ten Commandments? What kind of obedience? Personal, entire, exact, perpetual. So far, so good. In addition to this law, usually called the moral law, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several topological ordinances. In some ways, these concerned worship by prefiguring Christ, his grace, actions, sufferings, and benefits. In other ways, they revealed various instructions about moral duties. Since all of these ceremonial laws were appointed only until the new order arrived, they are now abolished and taken away by Jesus Christ as the true Messiah and the only lawgiver. He was empowered by uh, the Father to do this. All right. So in other words, the moral law is binding. The ceremonial law is done away with in Christ because it was there to point to what? To Christ. All right. So far, so good. All right. How many, how many paragraphs do we have here? Uh, we won't be able to finish all of them. All right, we'll just do one more. Is that okay? That fine? All right, here we go. Um, that paragraph four, it's, it's short. To Israel, he also gave various judicial laws, which ceased at the same time their nation ended. These laws no longer obligate anyone as part of that institution. Only their general principles of justice continue to have moral value. What, kind of, what, what do we sometimes refer to that law as? Civil law. All right. So we have the moral law that that concerns us written on the heart that demands what? Perfect, entire, exact, perpetual obedience. We have the ceremonial law, which pointed to Christ. And when Christ came, ultimately, he fulfilled that ceremonial law and we looked to him. Civil law was specifically for Israel, telling Israel how to govern itself. Correct. Okay, but. Are we, are we under a theocracy now? No, we're not under that, so we're not under that, that law. Some people want to reinstitute that law, but then, well, then you would have to reestablish a theocracy, and, well, then you see all the problems that can arise from that. Okay, if God, if God starts dwelling in the midst of the tabernacle again, or in the temple, then by all means, let's start back with a, theocratic, a theocratic system. All right, we have to stop there. All right, any questions?
All right, so here's what I want you to get. The law demands a certain kind of obedience. So if I, if I make the law the basis of testing one's salvation, not only am I creating that circle. Remember the circle? If I say I'm saved by grace alone through faith alone, and if I'm saved, I will do these things, and if I don't do things, I'm not saved. A roundabout way, I'm saying I have to do these things in order to be saved. And if I have to do these things in order to be saved, how must I do them? Personally, exact, tire, and perpetual. Does anyone do any of God's law those ways? No. Therefore, if you look to that to be saved, what are you going to find every time you look to it? You're going to find that you're not saved. You won't even be able to look to heaven. You'll just put your head down and smite your chest and say, I'm a sinner. You won't be standing there going, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like all of these others. I'm using the parable. Everybody know the parable I'm referencing? All right. But I'm going to make an argument that the law was never the basis of assurance. And Christians don't think about this. We tend to point people to the law for assurance. If you point someone to the law for assurance, it can only be assurance if they fulfill the law personally, exact, entirely, and perpetually. Therefore, there's an issue there. Agreed? Now, we still need to know the moral law. It's still written on our heart. It's still there. It still serves a purpose. But that purpose, we've got to separate that from the gospel. There's got to be a distinction between the two. And if we mingle that together, we destroy the gospel and we become a law-based Christianity instead of a gospel-based Christianity. And inadvertently, that is what has happened. So, on Sunday, we'll start back at the beginning of the London Baptist chapter 19. We'll work on chapter 20. And then, then we'll slide over to the first thesis and the 25 theses that we've been given. All right? And remember, those 25 theses are available on the Church One app or the Sermons 2.0 app. All you have to do is look for the message uh, called uh, Law and Gospel PDF. It's right there. Or even the one, the message before that. I already added it there as well. Okay? And I'll keep adding, I'll, I'll probably just keep adding the PDF for all the messages I upload in this uh, series so that people can find it. But it's right there. It'll open up in your app. It's easy, great, and uh, makes it simple. All right? So know those 25. Know those 25. Because we're going to need that. And if you want, you can continue to read the London Baptist, second London Baptist, on law and gospel and see where there's going to be some possible problems. And, and, and make it, I'm going to end with this. There isn't easy answers to these two, how these two fit, or how to, uh, it, it, there's no easy answer in making a distinction between these two and trying to understand how they all relate. It's a problem because they're complicated. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Thank you for the opportunity to be in a church where we can study a little church history and work on such an important theological discussion that hopefully will help us appreciate the gospel more and understand the proper use of the law. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...